Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. July 16, 2023, episode 225, two and a quarter. Hello everyone, Chief Cook and Bottle Washer here, Kevin England, welcome you into the corner. The episode two and a quarter is a nod to 225 episodes, which is an interesting milestone for the show. For one, it means a practical thing to me, as one time I made numbered episode artwork for future episodes for the long haul and remember at the time that I went overboard to make a stash for future shows and now I find myself needing to make the next batch. I also kind of think that each time I pass a quarter mark, 175, 200, 225, and the next installment when we get to 250, it's just something that connects with me for some reason, and I'll call it a mini little victory that requires a little bit of acknowledgement. Anyway, what a packed show we have today. I don't know how this happened, but sometimes we get on a kick about talking of Varroa, and while it kind of comes with the territory in any beekeeper's path to constantly understand public enemy number one. So there's a bit of that in the show. Before I run down the agenda for today's episode, I want to take a moment to share something that's simply good housekeeping and I have to remind myself I should do this more often. Our website is www.bkcorner.org. The YouTube channel is youtube.com slash bkcorner. The Facebook page is facebook.com slash beekeeperscorner. My email address, if you ever wanted to write me, and I'm usually pretty good about writing back to folks, is kevin at bkcorner.org. The Manage Mentoring website is managementoring.com. My local beekeepers association is the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association, www.nwnjba. And you can find a lot on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash nwnjba there. And last but not least, every show like this one has show notes that include a list of all of the topics covered, along with a timeline of what time the topic around town table was covered and some accompanying notes and, of course, links discussed. Last thing to be said, the podcast website also has some content about past presentations that I've delivered to our club, to clubs that hire me in to talk to them, state meetings, regional conferences like EAS, and the things that I get to here and there. Okay, there was a promise of an agenda in there somewhere, so let me run it down. Roundtable number one, there's a new kid in town. Mite biters with the jaw for the job. Roundtable number two, a chink in the armor of my polystyrene equipment. I'll tell you what I found. Roundtable number three, a short share of a beekeeper visit and some of the observations and lesson learned from that one-on-one. Roundtable number four, I'm hoping I can convince you to take a little bit of time out of your day to go see how a honeybee stinger works. It's truly a feat of nature. Roundtable number five, an observation to be on the lookout for summertime queen failures. 
Roundtable number six, the not-so-good news on some of the messiness going on with the principles of the very popular Hive Life conference. It seems things are a little shaky there, and I'll talk about the basics of the troubles. And they've said that the conference is going to proceed, and you'll hear more about this when we get to that roundtable. Roundtable number seven, I'm pleased to share that I've been added to the speakers list of the Northern Lights Conference taking place Alberta, Canada in September, early October. I'm going to talk about what the conference has going on. It looks like an amazing program. Roundtable number eight, whew, <laughs> I guess I got a little ambitious for this go round. I have an art of the possible moment about how to sequester drones. One that I wasn't sure about in the past episode, but now I've kind of brainstormed a possible solution to discuss. Now turning to topics, one topic for this episode, and this is going to make some folks happy. I spent an afternoon with Bob Kloss, and we fired up the recorder, and you can follow along as we chit-chat, get caught up about going to work bees at Valley Crest Farms. In a bit of a wait there's more. We cannot close the episode without a local hive report, and I'm going to share what I've been doing lately, including a rundown of my mite sample results. And of course, we'll close the episode out with a couple comments, including a link to a recent podcast vlog I was on with Bruce Rodriguez from Swarmstead Bees. Yeah, it's going to be a long one. Get yourself a Adult beverage, a soda, a glass of water, maybe a little bag of chips or something like that. And let's head off into roundtable number one. Roundtable number one, there's a new kid in town. There's talk on the street, it sounds so familiar. I'll open the episode with a recent release of some information that has a trait that has emerged on honeybees that through observation may lead somewhere in our fight against varroa mites. Recently, an article for agriculture popped up in my newsfeed entitled, New Breed of Bees Might, M-I-T-E, Help Hive Health in Ohio. It bee researchers in the Central State University of Wilberforce, Ohio, are working with a new strain of bees that take a new twist on the biter aspect of defense against varroa mites. Now, I've heard of Purdue ankle biter bees, which have demonstrated that they bite off the legs of varroa mites. This is something that's been reported on the marketplace for years and years. Now there's another biter among us, and these differentiated bees come just to the east from Ohio. These mites, dubbed Ohio mite biters number one, are anatomically a bit different by having smaller mandibles. This trait is said to make them better groomers as the smaller mandibles, quote, give them a better ability to bite off the parts of the mites, impacting their ability to attach to the brood or adult bees, end quote. When I saw this story, I wanted to take a moment to get reacquainted with the background of the Purdue mite biters. And I did a little search and found a resource from the American Bee Journal that outlines some of the work done in the past. I'll have a link to that in the show notes if you're not familiar with it. 
The Purdue efforts focused on varroa mite traits of active groomers chewing off the legs of the mites as evidenced by dead mites on the bottom board initially. And then the Purdue people went on to see if they could find markers that showed how to encourage this line of behavior in bees, the succession of the colony's population. The thing about this is during the years of Purdue's study of how to determine if the colony had the genetics of it, quote-unquote, meaning they had a predisposition to groom mites off the bodies aggressively, they discovered a gene called Nerexin that seemed to be linked to the grooming behavior. Nerexin is, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is spelled N-E-U-R-E-X-I-N. Now, as a practical matter, though, figuring out which colony has it and which colonies do not, it's a tedious task because you constantly have to figure out how to select for those genetic traits and phenotypes that you're after. Yeah, let me take a moment to connect you with the word phenotype. It's a word that pops up here and there, and every time I see it, I have to get reacquainted to what it represents. The word phenotype comes from the Greek language in origin, and it infers that something has an observable trait. One of the more common examples used is eye color, which is a phenotype in humans. Hair color and texture are another. As to the formal definition, the term, quote, covers the organism's morphology, physical form and structure, its developmental processes, its biochemical and physiological properties, its behavior, and the products of behavior, end quote. In the case of smaller mandibles, I'm not sure that you're going to look into your colony, admire the mandibles of a bee on first glance, but as traits go, I can only imagine that for researchers, this is a far easier thing to discover in a colony. Let me make a comparison to help illustrate that. One of the things we just said is phenotype could be a product of behavior. In the case of the Purdue mite biter bee, a researcher would have to watch the bees groom the mites off of a bee and physically see the mites getting their legs torn off to prove the trade is in play. They can, of course, look for the mites dead on the bottom board, but when considering observation of the bee's behavior, it has to be easier to look for the trade of smaller mandibles, as that's something that could be done simply by plucking a bee off the comb and taking a look-see. It's another interesting factoid on the list of things that have come across the pile, and like each of these items that gets a little press, it'll be talked about in the circles, and some beekeepers will be pulling bees out and looking with microscopes to see if their bees have it. <laughs> I wondered if this will enter into the lexicon of artificial insemination traits to breed for. You know, if you do that kind of thing, you might select the bees for specific traits, and now there's another one to consider, smaller jaws. Interesting to learn this different take on bees biting mites, and I will link to an article that shares some of the instructions for sending collected samples from your bottom board to help researchers with their ongoing findings of looking at what became of the mite dead on your bottom board. New breed of mites in Ohio. Interesting story to surface on the pile.
Round table number two, I call this one Achilles heel. I wanted to relay an experience and share that I may have found the first proper challenge with my polystyrene hives. I have a 10 frame Paradise Bee Box set that I purchased in 2016. I'll start this round table by reiterating what I always say about this equipment. I really like them. So much so that I've invested in multiple other kits of six frame and a few eight frame configurations and I'm often spouting about how my hive setup says six over six over six which is three six frame boxes on a stack are working for me in my operation. I mentioned in one of my local hive reports last year that one of my honey super boxes a medium from the 10 frame kit purchased in 2016 fell askew one day and hit on a corner. It was fully loaded with honey and it broke. The corner tines sapped them off cleanly. I loaded the box in the cart full of honey frames and all and brought it back to the garage. After harvesting the honey frames, I repaired the box by driving four inch zinc coated exterior screws through the face and into the adjoining sides. It locked up the box tight and I have full confidence that the screws are not going to strip out even under load. Fast forward to this spring and I was bringing the boxes up to place them on the hive and one fell off the cart and hit the other corner, snapping off the tines. This time the box was not loaded or under duress in any way. I repeated the repair process by driving more screws and thought everything was okay, only to find that the tines on the other corner had also cracked from the impact. Four more screws fixed that before it could shear off completely. As a safety measure, I simply went to the last corner and drove all the additional screws. Now that box is sitting on the 10 frame hive and the bees are filling it with honey as we speak. I'm not sure if this was an isolated problem with that specific piece of equipment or over time, other joints on all the boxes will fail. I don't feel like I need to fret over this, but it's a watch item, and we'll see if this shows up in time, as some of the other equipment that I have in service is a lot newer, and it may take a while for it to get there. What concerns me is, when the polystyrene box fell off the cart, it was only loaded with frames that were, that were empty. They were just drawn comb. I'm pretty sure that a wooden box would not have self-destructed if it was put under the same test. Now, rightly so, I've had wooden boxes that have gone south in that same time frame just by rotting or breaking or chipping or peeling or delaminating or whatever. So, you know, if there's an occasional clunker in the mix, I don't know that that's really some reason to be concerned and stay away from polystyrene hives. I now have over a dozen kits of these polystyrene boxes, and if it's something that's going to happen, that the boxes will degrade and start to show flaws in their joinery, I will, of course, pass that along as we go through the programs of the future. I thought it was an interesting experience to lay, but again, even if the lifespan is only 7 to 10 years, I still think that they would truly be worth the benefits that come from the insulative properties over that time period. And that also compares to some wooden box that start to show flaws 
at the 10 year mark where the corners break, rot, and so maybe it's just the nature of the beast we can't expect our equipment to last forever. Round table number three, good on him. I wanted to relay an interesting experience that occurred with a mentor visit from the Managementoring Program. I went to check up on a new beekeeper who had some early season problems and wanted someone to just do a report card check that their colony was on a good trajectory. We did a typical hive inspection and everything looked well. His assessment was correct in the circumstances that led to the colony to be behind and it did not finish out in a typical time frame for a new colony which started as a nuke and should have been ahead of the curve but it was not fully into two boxes by the end of the last week of June. Long story short, the colony had a defective queen out of the starting gate and the beekeeper successfully did a queen replacement and in the time that it took for this to be discovered and mitigated the original colony dwindled in population. Couple that with the circumstance that it took a while for that new queen to get started and begin the population expansion, there was a period of time where the colony was just mustering to get things going. Now, if a colony does not get through the first couple of waves of producing bees, then they're not going to have the young wax builders who will set out to building all the honeycomb to get to two full boxes. And so, what should be done by the end of June will not be. And we saw frames of carpets of brood, and as you might envision, this is the promissory note that as long as he continues to feed the colony, it's going to make up for the delayed start. So that's an interesting lesson, but it's not really what this round table was about. As we finished up the inspection, he mentioned to me that he wanted me to see some odd-looking cells on the frames from the original nuke box. Now, darn if he wasn't right, that in the middle of a swath of brood on those frames, there was a smattering of entombed cells. Now, normally this would be something where the bees detected some sort of resource stored in the cell that was tainted in some manner. So they set off to physically seal off the cell with a thick wax capping. It's not very common. And I could say in all the years that I've been keeping bees, I've only seen it on a handful of occasions. But it demonstrates to me that this new beekeeper was doing a really good job at observing the frames within the hive. I will say that one of the things I see here is new beekeepers generally do not look at bees or observe the resources in the colony, including inspecting the comb. In the Managementoring program, I'm emphasizing that all the time. So when you pull a frame out, take pause and actually look at the bees. Take a moment, especially in the warm summer months when it's okay to have the hive open for a little while. And then look at the contents of the cell. Look where things are stored, how it's arranged, what the bees are doing. Look at the brood pattern. Look in the holes that are in the middle of the contiguous brood to see if you could figure out why they pulled that larva out or something like that. You know, if you look well enough, you're going to find something like this beekeeper did. So many beekeepers are just running through their day and they don't take a time to observe what's going on in the colony. Upon seeing that, I suggested to him that one of his priorities next season, next spring, 
is to make sure that he rotates out those five original frames that came from the nuke and that he should have the bees when they're better suited build fresh clean new comb and get that stuff out of there now who knows what the problem is that the bees detected but if you ask me it would be a high priority to get that old suspect comb out of the hive as soon as you have enough bees to build new honeycomb next season for him he's at a point now where he will be coaxing the bees through the early summer to finish the job of building two complete boxes of honeycomb and he should not disrupt the colony by pulling those five frames now especially since the queen was rearing most of the brood promissory note for him in the, his combs now that's not a great thing but what are you going to do it would simply be too detrimental to lose those bees and resources when the mission is to get the colony finished for summer and in anticipation of overwintering. So Noah has a to-do item to take care of early next spring when the population increases are on the rise and there will be a new wave of wax builders in the colony. I have to say for me personally, it was kind of a little proud moment because one of the things again that I try to teach is read the resources and he picked up on it. It was a very good observation on his part, so good on him. Round table number four, call this one Stinger Engineering. Given I post a lot about beekeeping on social media, it's only natural that social media will feed me back a lot of things about beekeeping. Recently, a video came my way about how a honeybee stinger works. Now, I've actually looked at honeybee stingers underneath a microscope and have quite a bit of notes as to how the sting, which is what it's anatomical term is called by the way is designed to work it's really a fascinating design and works as a large cohesive package this stinger coupled with the musculature coupled with the poison sac all work together to inject venom into whatever got stung the video that I saw is probably one of the most illustrative understandings of how the actual stinger mechanism as a whole works. The illustrative manner in which the stinger injects itself and continues to work once it's eviscerated from the bee is self-evident in how it delivers poison to the victim when you watch the illustration. Now in looking at the sting apparatus, I'm not 100% sure that I love the picture and how accurate it is given what I've seen from like Ian Stell's books on this thing but conceptually the video does a great job to illustrate how the constituent parts of the sting apparatus work together to deliver venom to the victim even after the apparatus is separated from the bee that delivered the sting. The video itself the little clip uses a combination of a real sting into human skin coupled with some illustrative diagrams that show conceptually how the muscles and the sting apparatus embed itself into the victim and continue to pump venom through the apparatus stylet. Describing it to you in this manner just does not do it any justice. And if you have a moment, hop over to the show notes for this episode and click on the video. Watch what I just spent a few moments describing. It's going to be worth your time, I promise. Round table number five, summertime queen failures. 
I wrote a blog post on the Managementoring Forum for our new beekeepers to let them know that they should be on Queen Watch, and you should be too. I wanted to share the information here. If you are a new beekeeper, one that started with a package or a nuke, it is that time. This is the window where some queen failures start to show up. They don't happen in high percentages, but they are common enough to be noticeable as a trend for this time of year. Behind the scenes, I'll give two plausible reasons why I think queens fail, but of course there are more. For package queens, well, they simply just didn't get well-mated. Early, early package delivery sometimes results in poorly mated queens because, well, maybe the weather down south hampered mating or there were not enough drones around for the queens to get mated properly. And as a byproduct, the queen cannot be all that she should be. Now, as to nukes, it's plausible to explain that a queen is on the other end of the spectrum. I've said this over and over. My experience tells me that queens by our estimation, lasts somewhere around two and a half years. And suppose you got a nuke at the beginning of the season with a two-year-old queen. Well, about mid-year, she's going to run out of gas. To diagnose a queen problem is something sometimes more of an advanced skill. A seasoned beekeeper will look into the brood nest and they're going to see it right away. A new beekeeper will not tap into the same clues because they just don't have the wherewithal. With that in mind, let me see if I can articulate a few things to look for. Give a warning to new beekeepers not to fret over something that presents as a failing queen. It's not really a sign. You'll, you'll understand in a moment. To understand the problem, one of the key things to consider is that it's the queen's job to build a worker and lay a fertilized egg. In a normal circumstance, she will fertilize the egg on its way out of releasing the spermatozoa from her nuptial flights. When she's out of sperm to deposit, things go through the motions, but without the sperm. The egg remains unfertilized and the unfertilized egg results in a drone. In this case, she tried to lay a worker in a worker cell, but it's a drone, so it's a drone in a worker cell. Now, whether the queen has not enough sperm from being poorly mated or she's run out, the result is the same. Bullet-shaped drones in worker comb. It presents just as it describes. It looks like something like took a 22 shell from a gun and stuffed it down into the cell with the tip up. Capped worker comb has a flat appearance, as you know. Capped drone in worker comb has a pointed dome tip over the cell walls. It's a dead giveaway that you have a problem. Now, the other thing is capped queen cells. Mm -hmm. If the colony's manufacturing queen cells in summer, especially when drones are not in abundance, and it's not forage season, well, there's your sign. Now, I have to share that sometimes a colony will, oops, the queen lays an egg in a queen cup and the workers make a queen cell out of it. Then the foreman on the job gets a notification of the screw up and they order the workers to tear it down. And the queen cell you spotted in July on inspection is torn down three days later. If you're looking 
to do a correction on your perceived queen problem. Very odd thing to have happen, but it does happen. And first things first, timing is key, right? I'll spend a moment retelling a passage in a blog post that beekeepers often become a touch complacent in summer. There really isn't a ton of management practices that require you to delve into the brood nest, unless you're doing treatments and things like that. So they stop inspecting or skip inspections. Maybe they go on vacation. Beekeepers have reasons. It's too hot. They have parties every weekend. Somebody's getting married. You know the drill. Now, later in the season, come August or September, they inspect to find the evidence that we just reviewed. They find bullet drone. They find capped queen cells. They find other poor brood patterns and things. It's not a good place to be in when you're trying to find a quality queen at that time of year, late August, early September, to put in the colony. As a public service announcement, you would be well served to maintain your vigilance in this period and discover the problem early and not be caught off guard in September. Our guidance would be you build in time on your first year especially to make sure that this isn't going to happen to you. And if it does happen to happen to you, you're one of those small percentages, you catch it early. The earlier you catch it, the better position you are to replace the queen and write the colony so it can carry on to build its winter bees and make it through to the next season. As I sit here today recording this, it happens to be July 16th, I've had four consults already for people who have encountered this problem. On the phone last night with someone who I recommended they replace their queen. So it's happening as we speak. Now, coming back to finding queen cells, you have two options. You can let nature run its course, or you can purposely replace the queen and control your destiny. One of the things that I say about this is, if the queen was faulty in the first place, and the bees are making new queens out of her materials, will you end up with a good outcome? Versus going to a reputable queen supplier, and buying a queen that you know is well-mated, hopefully already been in a colony and been checked by the seller, and you're going to come with a known quantity when you replace your queen. I don't know about you, but I think that's probably the less risk-safer bet when it comes to how do I want to proceed with making sure that my colony is going to make it through the winter. So the message here is keep tabs of your colony. July and through August for that small percentage where this problem does crop up. And for you regular beekeepers, if you have a colony that's on its second year, you should be paying attention to this too. For those of you who have some misfortune, well, at least you'll be ahead of the game when it comes to catching the problem and correcting the situation. If you started with a package this year, you are likely in a group that has a higher percentage of this occurring and you should be especially vigilant. This is not a knock on package producers, but like queen problems that are known to occur on initial startup, this is known to happen as colonies progress through the season. It's just the nature of the beast that certain percentage are gonna have some of these problems. Now, coming back to you find a queen cell, you can 
given it's earlier in the season, tolerate letting a natural queen replacement occur. But if it's late summer or fall, then your chances of letting things run its course are a little riskier. You have to consider that that virgin queen has to get mated. And all the time there are less drones in the overall ecosystem, especially later in the year. And if she fails, you're really going to be behind the eight ball. And additionally, there'll be a period of no brood being produced while this virgin gets up and running at the time your colony is supposed to be rearing winter bees. The other thing is if the virgin fails to get going and you decide maybe you want to buy and install a queen, the later you go into the season, the harder it is to find a good queen. They just run out. They're, they're not available for sale. If you ask me off the cuff about timing, I think you get the gist. I would offer that if it were past July or mid-August, I would look to do a queen replacement and override their bees with the notion of raising a queen through a capped queen cell and saving your money. Now the attention thus far has been for new beekeepers, ones who started this year, but again, the guidance is for those who have a queen that's been in service for a few seasons. Think about it. They just went through a major forage season. They've been producing bees all season long. If they're ever going to run out of gas, this is the time. So you need to be on watch this summer. 2.5 years and queens seem to falter. And if that queen has not swarmed or superseded, then you two should be on watch to make sure she makes it through. Roundtable number six, I call this one no good outcome. Be smirched by scandal is how this is going to be seen going forward. When it comes to beekeeping, I'm almost always a glass half full, but sometimes things happen that just can't be avoided. Uh, this weekend, there was a blow up about the Hive Life Conference, which we attended last year and really enjoyed. You probably either know about this or have no clue, and whichever fence you sit on, it's kind of irrelevant. We could just talk about the dynamic of this. And before I go into this, I don't pick sides. I just tell you what I know and people can figure things out. However, I am one of those people I feel that has a reasonable read on things and also has history with this particular type of event with a couple different things I've experienced in my past. I know I'm speaking in riddles. You don't know what I'm talking about yet. But given my past experience, I can make a judgment on something and say, this is usually how it goes. It's not me saying this is what happened or picking sides. It's just an interpretation of something. So now to what I'm talking about. We attended the Hive Life Conference last year, and it was a great conference. And the face to the conference is Cayman Reynolds. I don't particularly know Cayman because I'm not a person that spends all my time following influencers and YouTubers and so on. Yes, I've seen Bob Binney. Yes, I've seen Frederick Dunn. Yes, I know who Dirt Rooster is and all the people that were at the conference. Of course, I've seen videos, but I'm not scouring YouTube every day to see what the most recent publish is. And apparently, although I'm not familiar with him, Cayman Reynolds is a popular YouTuber. 
I, I look more to people like Ian Stepler who talk about management practices and, and ways of doing things. And I just never encountered Cayman. But it was apparent at Hive Life that he was, whether it was self-aggrandizing or just the way that the branding worked, the face to the conference. It was announced in the last couple of days that he is no longer associated with the Hive Life organization. And he intends to, by his own words, start his own conference and go a separate direction. I don't know what his gist is as far as people following him. Only what I can observe is a lot of people have followed him, are devotees, and are aligned with him no matter what goes on. They're following him to his new quest. It just so happens that I was one of the first 15 people that watched a post from Hive Life from Dustin Wiggins, who is the chairman of the Hive Life conference, indicating that they separated from Cayman because, his words, a $50,000 withdrawal was made from Hive Life nonprofit funds without authorization. And after consulting an attorney, they explained to him that or to the board, I should say, and again, I'm just interpreting what I think I heard, that they should separate from Cayman. And so there's a video, I'll have a link to it, from Hive Life Conferences, where Dustin is setting, quote-unquote, the record straight as to what went down, the communication between Hive Life participants and Cayman, along with some attorney conversations and ultimately it led to Hive Life disassociating themselves with Cayman and his wife. If you listen to the subterfuge of what goes on beyond that, Cayman is claiming that this is a misrepresentation of facts and others are backing Cayman on what happened and so on. Okay. The one thing I do know from what I've heard is that they will continue to have Hive Life and it will be interesting to see what the fallout will be. The bad news is this is going to fracture things. I don't know if Cayman's actually going to be able to pull off putting together a conference of that magnitude sitting here in July. And will the Tennessee area, if he's going to host it down there, support two conferences running side by side? I turned to one of my other passions in life, which is motorsports, where in the past, the dirt racing community in the Northeast fractured. People used to run Syracuse, New York as the end of year major show where every all the great and amazing drivers went to. At some point, Lindy Vicari started Nazareth National at Nazareth, the home of Mario Andretti and ran head to head and split the modified community of racers in half and both shows were awful. That's what happens in this world. I have to say on the surface that with the information I have right now, if Dustin Wiggins is correct in his claims, that I can only say if someone took money and it was unauthorized, they have no choice but to take that action. I reserve judgment until the facts unfold and in time, I guess the true story, whatever is behind it, will come out. 
I want to say, and this is just my personal observation and not a dig at any individual, Cayman obviously is well versed at communicating. He can tell a story and have emphatic uh, emotion and, and articulate and so on, where it's obvious that Dustin is not comfortable with this from the video that I saw. It's very raw, it's very unpolished, and that's not a dig on Dustin. He's just not the face to the customer. But in this case, he had to put himself out there in order to explain. And if you look at it on the surface, it's kind of like, I don't know, again, I'm just analyzing this, <laughs> maybe overanalyzing it. The unspoken person who had to take the risk to go out there and explain the situation tends to have more credibility from what I've seen when this occurred in a couple of organizations. I've seen a, a person take money from a fire company. I've seen uh, an operation where uh, a treasurer took money from a Boy Scout troop. And in all of those situations that had almost a parallel dynamic, the articulate, well-spoken person was actually, in the end, the one that committed the act and the other people were just trying to figure out how to respond to it. Again, not passing judgment, just making a connection from a couple past incidents that I was involved in. Not directly, <laughs> not a pilfer of funds. I just know from, you know, being in organizations that I've been through this a couple different times. I'm a professional volunteer. I've been with Rescue Squad, Fire Company, Emergency Management, Baseball, Soccer. seen it in baseball too, by the way, and other community organizations and unfortunately when people are trusted with money sometimes things go astray and I've seen it two or three occasions and well here's another example of a public outcoming of um, something that happened so where this all goes I guess we'll stay tuned haven't registered yet for Hive Life um, and I guess we'll just have to keep our ear to it. I was planning actually on going on Hive Life and I, I can't imagine that this changes anything. I will look at the speaker lineup quite frankly to see but uh, enjoyed that conference last year and quite frankly if they're going to do what they did last year again I see no reason why to participate. I have no qualms about Cayman Reynolds. He's just some guy who does content production and to me that's not what the conference is about the conference is about education and access to uh, vendors and community and if that's what's going to happen again as long as there's nothing nefarious going on I, I see no reason why not to support the hard work of the individuals and it takes a village to do something like that there is one thing that you would say and uh, there was a very Steve Jobs-esque kind of thing about Cayman's face to the customer for this whole Hive Life thing. So when you come back to the original premise of, you know, no good outcome, yeah, this is going to be sticky for the rest of the summer, I'm sure. And he said, she said, they said, conversation. But now you know, I'll have a link to two videos. One where Cayman announces that he's no longer part of Hive Life on somebody else's podcast where they cover beekeeping topics. And I'll have a link to the Hive Life video 
where Dustin Wiggins explains why they separated with it. He shows messaging from the attorney. He shows text message clips that he had with Cayman explaining his side of it and some of the backstory that I'm not going to go into. And, um, you know, if this is of interest to you, you can go figure out what your position is on this if you really need to, or at least get better informed. Hey, I want to say this too, is why did I even bother to stick this in here? The fact of the matter is the first thing I saw this morning when I got up is somebody texted me and said, did you see this thing about Cayman Reynolds? And I can only imagine that there were so many people and so much buzz about Hive Life last year that it's going to be one of those topics that can't be avoided to be discussed. So um, I just figured it would be useful to give the information. So if somebody was interested in finding out what's going on, because I think um, a lot of people are probably going to hear came inside of it, but they would not know to go look and hear what Dustin said. And so I think it's important that people actually try to find out the full information and uh, I'm sure, as I've just said, there's going to be more to come on this. Roundtable number seven was, I wanted to share the news that I have the fortune and privilege of being added as a presenter for the Northern Lights Beekeeping Conference, a joint international conference being hosted in tandem by the Western Apiculture Society and the Calgary and District Beekeepers Association. I had mentioned on the most recent show that Sharon and I were mustering to go in September and well, it so happens that when one of the presenters plans unfortunately changed, that opened up an opportunity. As you might imagine, I'm truly excited that it worked out this way and so appreciate the opportunity. I'm especially happy to be able to interact with a new community of beekeepers. I've mentioned in past episodes that my oldest son lives in Seattle. When I'm out there, I try to do whatever I can to connect with the upper western region beekeeping scene by finding beekeepers to talk to. And well, I think this is going to be a great immersive experience along those lines. Now, if I can only figure out how to get to the southwest, that's been a place that has never been um, successful for me, but all that aside... I have to find the time to figure out some things to present and I have a to-do item to look at what others are presenting and see what I can find that both complements the topic list while not conflicting with it. I did have a short exchange with the team at Tardif as to some potential topics to present and I'm pretty sure that one of the workshops I'll be presenting is a lesson on propolis in the hive and the benefits of propolis including how to make a proper propolis tincture. If you're from that region or like us, you're looking for something to do at the end of September, you can get all of the details on the westernapiculturesociety.org webpage. Just click on the link on the homepage navigation for the 2023 conference. I'm so looking forward to learning more about beekeeping in the areas of Alaska, Yukon, British Columbia, the Canadian Prairies, Washington, Idaho, and Montana while spending some time in Calgary. There's also a mix of speakers that sit on both sides of the spectrum in my way of thinking. I'll get to see Dewey Karen in his native habitat, <laughs> given he's now a resident out west, and several others on the dockets are ones that I know. In addition, there are some that I have never seen, and if their sessions are not in conflict with what I have to present, then hopefully I'll get to make my box bigger. Hmm. 
as I look at it there, ironically, it looks like Kevin Reynolds is in the presenter pool. That's kind of an interesting coincidence given what we just talked about. I have to say that I'm really excited to see, of all the people, Medhat Nasser, especially since I've seen him before and really connect with what I've seen from him. And of course, by my way of thinking, he might be one of the most influential beekeepers of that particular region. To me, I've always considered him like the face of that zone of Canada and what happens in the upper northwest. You know, at one point, there was missed ties for him being a Jersey guy, if I understand correctly, something that never panned out, and that was actually our loss. It should be noted that there are opportunities for someone to sponsor and or be a vendor at the show for the conference available, and you can go to the website and click on those links if that's something that is appealing to you. They're going to host some tours as part of the program. They're even having a honey show, so as conferences go, it's sure to be pretty rich experience. Maybe you already know you're going and we will see you there. If you are, please take the time to come introduce yourself and say hello. Sharon and I would really like that. I'll have a link to the website for the Northern Lights Beekeeping Conference in the show notes and note that registration is currently open for the September 29th to October 1st dates in Calgary, Canada. Roundtable number eight, last one for the episode, a car recording, me talking to myself on the way to some place, thinking about the art of the possible, and this has to do with the last episode, which I hope you listened to, because I thought it was a pretty interesting mix of topics, so here goes. I'm driving in my car, going to the races on a Saturday afternoon heading to the race shop to meet up with the team to drive to Lincoln Speedway today and I thought I'd record something real quick. It's a follow-on to the last episode and art of the possible for sequestering drones as part of the whole conversation about let the drones take one for the team. If you didn't hear the episode, the premise is that the drones are carrying Varroa mite through the season and you could do drone brood culling but if you do that then those drones are not carrying Varroa mites and the Varroa mites in the colony would be living at a higher percentage on the workers something along that line and so the suggestion the play pretend was maybe we'd be better off letting the drones be around in the colony until their time comes that they are sequestered out of the hive and let them take the brunt of the impact, take one for the team, so to speak. In the episode, I did not try to figure out how to actually make that happen. But in subsequent days, I came to a possible idea. And so the point here is to share a art of the possible, art of the possible idea. How, how might you go about that? There's a piece of equipment for sale. I think only better be has it at this time. We purchased one, Bob Kloss and I both got one at the Hive Life Conference in Tennessee in January. It's a full deep cage. And the premise of this has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but in essence, it is a box that you can take a 
deep frame and put in and close the lid with a latch and it seals the queen inside the box. The way that it works is it has a metal frame across the top bar or down both sidebars and across the bottom. And the faces that sit above the face of the comb are ex almost identical to queen excluder grid material. You're supposed to use this for queen activities related to varroa mites. There's a bunch of different ways. One of the predominant one is you let the queen do her thing on that single frame while the rest of the colony emerges all of its brood. And then you can issue a treatment to a broodless colony except for that single one. And then when the time to comes that your treatment is done, you can treat that single frame or pull the frame and whatever. That's, that's the premise of it. There's another thing for it in the context of treating is just do a brood break. Same concept, different theme. But that's not really what we want to talk about. To use this thing for drones, this is the idea. Finally, sorry, I think get there. Take a drone brood frame early in the season, put it inside this cage, let them draw all the drone. You'd obviously have to put the queen in there so that she rears drone. Or you could take a drone brood frame, put it in the colony, let it get capped, and then put it in this cage. That's probably the more or the less friction way to do it. And here's the kicker. When all the drone brood emerge, leave the drones in there. Let them take one for the team for as long as you want. And at any given time, you can pull that frame and freeze it. That will kill all the drones. And this whole thing of having to select the frame where the queen is and all that stuff, you don't have to worry about it. Queen's not on that frame. There's nothing but drones in there within reason. So, hear me out on this. I'm, I'm sure that workers get in there and do the thing. At the point that you pull it, you pull the frame out, and you set it alongside the colony, and you knock it around a little bit. And my guess is that all the workers can get through the cage, but the drones can't. Then when the time comes to sample... You just freeze the cage because you're going to kill the drones anyway because you don't want their mites to be in the colony. And you could take whatever mites are dead, sample at a half cup or whatever the future thing is going to be for how you sample drones. And then you can take the drone brood frame and put it back in the colony and do your drone culling procedure all over again. Or... In the interim, you'd put your second drone brood frame in and get that one going and eventually put that one in the cage. So could we find a way to sequester the drones? Actually, it already exists. If drones can't fit through a queen excluder, 
my hypothesis or suggestion that, that I've seen that be true is true, then, yeah, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? I look to the left at this house and what's sitting back there but two beautiful beehives on a nice stand. Isn't that pretty? I, I have to say that this is an observation, a Kevin moment. I went to uh, a get-together recently. And while I was there, there were three beekeepers just in the general population. At this, there were a dozen people there. It seems to me that nowadays, it's just astonishing how many beekeepers there are in this world. They're everywhere. You, you can't throw a rock and not hit one. It's like one of those things where in the past it used to be unique. You'd be in a crowd of 50 people and you might run into one or two at most. Now you're in a crowd of ten and three of them are beekeepers and one of them knows somebody who in their family is a track beekeeper. It's just crazy how many bees are around anymore. I don't know if that's just because after colony collapse and with COVID it just keeps going. We've seen how many beekeepers there are, but it's just crazy. So back to topic at hand. Yeah, this is an interesting idea. Maybe next spring... We'll have to put it to the test. Take one of the Pierco green drone brood frames, let it get fully set up, and once it's capped, take it and put it in the cage that I bought and let it run through the season and see what happens. Just examine whether the drones can get out and what happens to them in there. I'd be curious to wonder, it's another thought, would the drones in that thing be able to convince the workers to take care of them? Sorry, sitting at a light. Need to pay attention. Again. When you have drones that come back after going out to a drone congregation area, they walk around the hive and they futz up to the worker bees and tickle their antenna and say, feed me. Or they go over and they uh, get a little fill. I think they, they might actually be able to help themselves here and there. But if they're sequestered for a long period of time, never to get out of that cage unless we let them out, what would happen? Would, they, would the bees expire inside that cage? And It's kind of interesting to wonder what would happen if you left them in there to take one for the team. I wonder if they would be able to clean them out even. If a bee died inside the cage, a drone, would the workers be able to drag them through the hole? Since they can't fit through there, that's the reason they're sequestered. There's just some things we have to learn about as we think through all the, the underlying things that happen with this. So that's an interesting idea, isn't it, to think about for next season. That's all. That's what I wanted to say. Now, turning to the back of the show, let's go into the first topic of this episode. And what I'm going to do is something that I don't get to do too often, a road trip. Uh, Bob Kloss and I went out one day to do some work on bees. And 
it's just a smattering of topics. You get to hear us talk like the show premise of Two Beekeeper sitting in a bar. I was obviously driving, and you'll have to forgive. You can hear the blinkers as I turn. You could hear him asking me for, or me asking him for directions and so on. But in general, I, I, I think if you have a friend in beekeeping and you, you get a chance to spend some time together and you talk about bees, the conversation is always a lot of fun. And I, I love listening back. I don't like listening to myself when I listen to the shows, but I like listening back to the conversations that Bob and I have because it's just so much fun to hear us analyze on the fly different thought processes and bounce stuff off of each other. And there's a smattering of that in this presentation. We were driving to Valley Crest Farms to go look in on a couple of hives. And I should say that when you lean into this and listen to it, you'll realize that Good on him, the segment I did a little bit earlier, has a little bit of what I was talking about. It's Bob and I discussing that visit that took place that morning that the two of us connected. I left it in here. I could have cut it out and left it as redundant, but I thought that the conversation that Bob and I had squeezed a little bit more out of the thought process, things like brood breaks and such. So uh, you'll get to hear a similar but different take on the same story up front before I head into the recording that, yeah, it's recorded from the audio being picked up in my car as we're driving down the road. The quality is not that great. The sound probably tops out when it overmodulates and things like that. But I think for the most part, it's probably reasonable enough to listen through and hear what happens. So here we go. So I'm on Lazy Brook Road. Rolling towards Valley Crest Farm, and uh, I found somebody standing in his driveway. Who's this guy next to me? I think it's Bob. <laughs> I don't know sometimes. Hey. <laughs> uh, We're so. going to work, bees. Uh, early summer stretch. How's your summer going, Bob? So far, so good. I had a good day today. Everything that I tried to do worked, and so for that, I'm happy. The first thing was, you know, the, the whole story about the uh, Red Queen that Shannon bought and my queen yeah. and how we got it mixed up and they were trying to kill her and ball her. But, and we finally got it squared away to where she had her queen in her box, nuke, and it was laying. She gave me my queen back in my nuke and she was laying. So that's where we were. So I get this nuke back and she tells me, that it's, you know, bubbling over with bees and she's afraid they're going to swarm. That's why she gave it back to me right away. So I go in there and look and there's at least a whole frame empty where the queen can lay. And the bees are barely covering three frames. So I'm looking at it and going, okay, this is not a high okay, item yeah. that's bubbling over with bees. What am I going to do with it? This was a consult that you did to help somebody out who yeah. she needed had a, a she needed queen a, problem. Well... And you love this Quote story unquote. too, right? <laughs> she had a queen problem. She bought a, a new queen, and guess what? When she went in a week later, she had a queen already in there. So anyway, that's it's like one of the fundamental principles of beekeeping. If you don't think you have a queen, wait. Wait, wait a week. You know, wait. I say that all the time, don't I? Although I have to say to you, I asked you for a couple frames because I'm, I'm out of all drawn comb, out completely. I stole six frames. Remember I told you that uh, bees moved into the 
the swarm box the second time this year, <laughs> sitting in the breezeway. They didn't have a queen. They had a queen or uh, a drone layer. Working a worker. Okay. Laying worker. Sorry, holy crap, I had a stroke there. A laying worker. And I felt bad because there was like a teacup worth of bees that looked like that one on your front porch. And I walked them up and I shook them out in the yard and stole the comb so I could put it in this hive that we're going to because I am out. And I asked you for three frames because yeah. I'm... And I went through mine and I could hardly find three frames. And the ones that I do are probably... Well, a couple of them have dates on them. Yeah. Oh, nine. Oh, nine. Oh, Bob. And, and 11. I just, I just closed my eyes and stuck them in the box. <laughs> Those were some, oh, nine is my original year, you know. So that, <laughs> David, wow. 14, 15 years, something like That's that. That's pretty funny, Bob. So I anyway, I had this nuke, right? So first of all, the hive that I took it off, I took the queen out by mistake. That's what caused some of the problems that I was having with Shannon. So I said, well, you know, I'll just let it requeen itself. <laughs> So I went in there today to see if it had requeened, because it had been over four weeks. So I go through the top box, and there's honey, and again, all the, the center is all prepared for queen to lay. I go into the bottom box, and as I don't see, but I don't see any brood, uh, so I don't see any evidence of a queen. I go in the bottom box. The bottom box is the same way. All the frame is empty in the middle, waiting for the queen to lay, right? So I go back up into the top box, and I said, well, let me just check to this one side. Well, guess what? I get to the second frame from the outside, frame number nine, right? And I pull it up, and there's capped brood, you know, uh, uncapped brood, and even eggs. Yep, bias. One frame, one single frame. On the outside, that's rather interesting. The whole box, yeah, on second frame in. So I knew I had a queen. Now, is it the strongest hive in the world? No. Am I going to have to feed it? Probably do other things with it. But it's alive. It requeened itself. And on the bottom of that frame, actually, I saw two open queen cells. So I felt good about that. The other thing that I did, and this was crazy, I, I did it and I never thought it would work. I took that nuke that had three frames of bees in it, right? And you know I have some eight-frame hives going. So I have an eight-frame in my yard that died over the winter. It's got a deep box on the bottom, and it's got two boxes on top, which have, one of them was, I think, close to full of honey, and the other one had some honey in it. They were mediums. So I said, what the heck? I'm going to put these three frames into this eight-frame setup. In other words, put those three frames in the bottom box, which was a deep, right. and then just put the two top box see back what happens on right well i because i figured at least they could protect it right so once i did that i said you know what wait wait that's really interesting is you're not worried about the actual colony you're worried about protecting the comb from <laughs> wax moth yeah is that true isn't that funny that's an interesting twist on it right most yeah. beekeepers would be like i'm gonna put that in a nuke and i'm gonna raise it it's gonna overwinter <laughs> you're like I'll be happy if they just protected their colony from being eaten by wax moth. Yeah. So, so at least I thought it through after I put them in. I, I realized it was way too much space, right? We always tell people. Yeah, can lapse it down. Right. But so, they don't have to draw a cone, so at least they had that going for them. That's right. Right. So once I got done, I said, you know what? I better put a robber screen on this because 
they, if, if they find it and they start robbing it out, there's not enough bees to protect this thing. Yeah. And it's just going to get wiped out. So okay. I put a rob. I made a robber screen. Idea. I didn't have one for an A-frame. I made a robber screen. I put it on. So I'm watching it for the you know next week or so, and I see some bees coming and going. I see some trying to get into to the seams between the boxes, and I can't really tell are these robbers that are going in, or are these some of the bees from the nuke? So today was my day to go in and find out. Okay. And I go in the top box. And there's bees in it, but they're not covering every frame, obviously. That's a, a, uh, a box that had honey in it. Going the second one, the same thing. Anyway, I get down to the third one, and damn, if my queen isn't there, she's got three frames of brood, and uh, they're, they're a working hive. Oh, really? <laughs> they're a working hive. So, it, it, now again, is it weak? Yes, it's weak. Uh, does it need going to need some help? Yes, it's going to need some help. Are you going to feed it? But it's still alive. I'm going to feed once, it. Once you get to that point, you go, hmm, this one has a chance. Yeah. I thought I was going to protect the comb, but I think I might even feed this one. Exactly. Right? Now, they have, they had a box of honey, so they may not need feeding, but they may. They, they may, may need a boost, is what I'm thinking. And you, yeah. know, you know I do this a lot, trying to equalize hives. Right. They may need a frame of cap from one of my strong colonies, right? Just to boost the population. But, okay, so that was... Now I'm two for two, right? Yeah, good. So then I went into my uh, bee barn that Butch made for me. And it's it's beautiful. He, he made almost a half a dozen of these. And they're just... It's a really... It's a really cool hive. hive. Yeah, it's basically a hive that's made with two by fours. Or no, it's made with a box, a deep box in the center. And then on the outside, two inches of foam insulation, and then two by fours on, on the outside. It's it's really nice. So uh, I put a swarm in there that was given to me, and I, I wanted to just go in and check and make sure all the frames were being drawn out. So nine of the frames were drawn out. The tenth frame was partially drawn, so I just picked it up and I put it in the middle. So that was good, too. Then... <laughs> I've been watching a swarm trap that I have set up in my yard, and it's it's only about six feet off the ground. Um, but I've caught a swarm in it every year for the last several years. Okay. So the last time I was down there, I saw a bee or two checking it out, and I thought, uh, okay, not much of anything. Then I went down again this past week, and I saw like maybe a half a dozen in and out and in and out and around and uh, so I went down this morning and there was even more activity I mean what are the chances if if they're not really checking it out what are the chances that you go down there and at that time that you're down there yeah. there's scout bees in it right so so there was maybe again how can I ask maybe a dozen bees coming and going but there was activity so I may catch a swarm yet Ain't worth a fly, Bob. <laughs> well, with, with, with the you, two you weeks know the I, saying, I have, right? <laughs> yeah, with the two weeks I have, the week hives I have, it may a be swarm just, in May is gonna make hay. A swarm in June is worth the silver spoon. A swarm in July, maybe, today's July first, ain't yeah, worth a fly. Maybe just what I need. But you know, it's always fun. I went this morning to see a mentee. He had some trials and tribulations. Yeah, had that go. Actually, I think his hive looks great. And let me tell you what, what I saw, and you tell me what you think. Well, what, did, what did he tell you? Why did you go down there? He just said the hive isn't 
built to two full boxes and he's wondered, you know, because now it's for all my season, people see that in the regime and he wants to know what's the guidance when you're in a unusual state because everybody else that started is already two boxes and building more and he's not fully built into the second box. So this is the situation. He received a nuke in the beginning and the, the queen was a dud. And they tried to rear a new queen and the new queen was a dud. He went and bought a queen, got it from Grant, put it in, and that queen took a little while to get going, but now it's going. And so you can imagine that the original population dwindled from the nuke. And from his perspective, it, it got a slow start. But as soon as this new queen started to lay, she's starting to build population. The first generation is in there. The second round of capped brood is coming. And we went down into the second box. So the first box, frame two through eight, are built. Where am I turning, by the way? Straight. We keep going. Okay. You just got to go past roundabout. Oh, okay. Don't let me miss it. I'm just, uh, I'll be talking and we'll yeah. drive right by. Um, you know, so two through eight is built, and the top three, four, five is started. It's all brand new, fresh, beautiful comb. And the bees were as calm as could be. And the colony, it just looks like it finally hit critical mass of bees to build the wax that's needed. There were carpets of brood down below, which are the promissory note that the future generation will come to build wax. Like and he's feeding it. Decent queen. The queen looked great. And, you know, I just think it's one of those things that, yeah, it's unusual to get to the 1st of July and you're still trying to build the colony. Yeah. The dearth is about to set in. He had a top feeder on. He's been feeding it. So, you know, he followed all the right moves. He's just physically at the tail end of being there. Now, you know how this works. Sometimes beekeepers get their nukes in June. There's a couple people yeah. that were in our program that just got their nukes two weeks ago. So they're in the same boat as him. And in essence, as long as they have a workforce and, and could sustain it. Now, if he did nothing, just left them to be, yeah. they'd probably grow a little, mm -hmm. but never reach the, the right critical mass to overwinter because they got such a slow start. Yeah. <clears throat> so from that standpoint, I think he was in, in a good place. And he originally had a plastic foundation. Your favorite. And he, and he switched it all out to wax. And, uh, and the comb that got built looks beautiful. Good. Good so I, I think, you know, from my and he wanted to know whether he needed to do a Varroa my check. One, they're going to continue to build new bees so they have new population coming. And two, I, I don't think, break. yeah. They had a brood break. Right. There, there's really no reason for him to be concerned until it gets to two full boxes, my thought. Uh, I think he's okay. And so I told them, you know, you're in a good place. Just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, that's tough for a new beekeeper when they suffer a setback like that, right? Because they're expecting everything to go according to plan. Yeah. And when it doesn't, 
they just don't know what to do. Well, and they're off the beaten path from everybody else, so they have to find their own path. Now, this is interesting. Ready? He said to me, good observation on his part, there's some really weird capped cells, really weird uh, content in some of the cells down below. So we got into the original brood frames that came from the nuke. It had encapsulated pollen throughout the brood. You've seen that, right? Yes. I'm thinking encapsulated pollen. It had plugs, a black capped something. We didn't dig into one because I wanted to leave and come here. Not that I wasn't. We took our time and did what we had to do. But but that was interesting. And, And my thought is that how often have you seen that in hives? Yeah, those are some old cones. For sure. Yeah. Next right, right here. here. Is that right? Next left. Yes. Okay. At the top of the hill. Yeah. So I said to him, "That's that's good on you to to spot that and ask that question because I think in all the years that I've been doing it, I've only seen it a handful of times." Yeah. And I said to him, "You're ahead of the curve <laughs> because now you've seen this when." 90% of beekeepers probably have not, and now you know what it looks like and where it comes from and what it's what it's about. So I well, thought that was an interesting learning moment for him. Yep, here. I got it. You, um, well, you may just experience more of that, Kevin, because the three Because the comb you gave me? Yeah, has, has tons of pollen in it, and it's old as, as I am. I told you that yeah. So uh, you may see some more encapsulated pollen, but... Well, again, it's not my not my style, but in this case, Bob, I, I'm just grateful. It was either that or put in um, foundationless, and I really didn't want to do that at this time of year. It's the wrong time to try that. So. So you brought a honey super to put on one of the club hives. Yeah. So these are. These are the two hives uh, that were attacked by the bear, and you and, oh, I, yeah, okay. and, you and yeah. I went over and yeah. rescued them and put them up here, and boy, were they ornery. <laughs> we got lit up. Uh, well, I got lit up. Last time we were here, they were okay, though, right? They've settled that's, in. That's right. They've settled in. But for a couple of weeks, they were really, really riled up and complained that they, they got torn apart by a bear. Fortunately, it only ate like really one box of brood and comb, and the rest of it and the boxes were all intact. But the beekeeper had a small child. She wanted to get rid of them. She didn't want the bear around, so we took them and we put them up here. So I need to put a super on that. One of them is five mediums, and the other is three mediums. So I'm going to put another super, even though it's kind of late in the year, uh, on the one that has three. And we'll see. I just hate to see them swarm at this time of year, you know, if they don't have enough room. I just want to check on my two honey supers that I put up here and also add another box to that swarm that I captured earlier in the year that is in two boxes and probably needs a little more space. I put a six frame on one of my six frame polys today. That thing is absolutely loaded with bees. And it, it was just incredible. Uh, how much activity it had going on. So as we pull into Valley Crest and look over here at the pollinator field. Look at, uh, that's all Menarda. Yeah. And it's about ready to pop any minute. 
it seems to have really taken over. Taken it's so over. cool to come here in the summer and just walk through. It looks like one of those fake movies with all the pollinators flying through the yeah. field. And There's a, a little bit of mint, I see. A couple black-eyed Susan in there. Yeah. Did we, we didn't do that, right? It's natural? I'm not sure. I think there might have been some. Look at that hawk. Yeah. Wow. Red tail. Yeah, that yeah. thing is huge. That was cool. All right, well, I'm going to sign off here so we can go work the bees and then turn left and go down to the apiary where in this beautiful field, a little bit of a haze from the smoke back here in New Jersey. And we'll probably chat on the way home. So let me sign off and talk to you soon. All right, all done pulling out of Alley Crest. Did you know that the bees gather pollen from plantain? See all this plantain that flowers? The little thing, yeah. yeah. No, I didn't know that. I, uh, you know, who said that was uh, the girls from uh, Nishanik State. Oh, yeah, okay. And they showed a picture of it with bees on it. No, and it's everywhere in the fields. Yeah, so they know. Around that's, here. That's another thing that they can. I don't think they get nectar off it. I think it was just pollen, but what the hay? Look at all that minority. We saw a butterfly bush. Yeah, that was cool. And what, what's the stuff that I said? I saw Queen Anne's lace, but you said there's something else in here? There's oh, they, there's a lot of butterfly weed here. That's great. You know what? It's hard to get that stuff started. Yeah. But once it does, it spreads. So that's good. I'm glad to see that. There's um some sort of mint. I think it's mountain mint. Oh, uh, mountain mint, yes. We did plant mountain mint. Yeah. Yep. So uh, we're we're pulling out of Valley Crest. We just finished our hive work, and now we're heading home. So, yeah. uh, what do we do, Bob? I I'll start with you. You just added a honey super to your box. Yeah, long overdue. Uh, quick, <clears throat> quick smoke and uh, pop off the lid. And uh, I hate to say it, but somebody seemed a little fussy there, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been there a couple times in my hives and not had it, but you opened yours and th they seemed a little testy. Yeah, they were. I, I smoked them too. I smoked the entrance and I smoked the inner cover, but uh, there was a couple of them that were not happy. Do you have colonies up here by the peach orchard? Uh, yes. That one is up there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's one. So my three hives, the one that we went to add, perfect timing boxes chock full you and i looked at it and it is just locked we went into pad number two i'll call it and i wanted to ask you this question or, or revisit what we saw so first off the honey super looks great yeah no 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 sorry i got it wrong it's in the it's in the uh eight frame poly We looked at four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine in the top box. Nine was honey to the outside. Eight, seven, six, five, four. All had brood emerge. It was all capped and it was emerging. And then there were eggs. One of the things, you know, we've had a really dry spring, you and I noticed is. Didn't seem to be a lot of pollen around the margins, and uh, frames looked a little bit dry. Yeah, and right? some of them had that spotty pattern. That and that's what I want to talk about. Talk so, about. usually when the queen lays across, you see 
brood come out from the center out. That's what you like to see. But this time of year, I mentioned to you that it seems, and I don't know what the difference is, that the brood is spotty. You see capped with holes all over the place. And I don't call that shotgun brood. I just call it what it is. And, and this is what I think. I have a theory. After cycle one and cycle two and cycle three of the season, they just don't, some bees take longer to come out than others. And even though the queen laid them probably in succession, when she puts stuff back in there, she puts it in when the cell is open. And sometimes this one's ready and sometimes the one next to it's not. And over the course of the season, it gets to be haphazard. And then the bees will emerge haphazard by the time summertime comes. What do you think of that theory? It's, a, it's as good as any, I think. Because I don't, I don't have any other explanation for it. It's clearly it's not hygienic behavior that they're you know, coming right. out. It's just bees coming out. It's just bees coming out, and it, and it appears that she's not laying in that nice circular pattern from the inside out. But uh, I think it's worth watching a little bit more to try to understand it. Well, one thing I did was take my phone out and take a couple pictures. And I had said to you, I was uh, trying to do a lesson about what you'll see, things you'll see in yeah. summer. Yeah. And I think both of us coming back to center here, we both looked at that and said, that doesn't look bad to us. And I think you and I have seen this enough to think this is just what happens, what brood patterns look like in summer. I originally, when I first used to say that, like, is there something wrong with my queen? Yeah. But but I don't worry about this anymore. I feel like if you see what was in the springtime, a carpet of brood, and it emerges, it typically emerges center out. Right. By this time of year, it's that cell, then the next one's capped, 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 that cell, that cell. The next one's capped, 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 that cell. And when you look at it holistically, it, after half of the bees come out, it looks like scattered holes all through a capped pattern. And I don't know, I just, somewhere in my brain says, this is not a problem. And, and we'll have to just keep an eye on this now that I took photographs of it. And one of the things that I was thinking the other day after creating a lesson for managed mentoring is I want to start taking pictures of frames all throughout the year. And then when I go back through the stock photos that I have, and I have thousands, I could look at the dates on them and say, okay, I see this pattern every year from here on in when I started to pay attention. And I could say, well, this is what normal looks like, not have the impression of it like we do now just because of experience but actually have physical pictures of it. You know, another thing to think about is, is she trying to lay on so many frames now that she just shotguns it? A couple here, go right. over there, a couple yeah. here. Now, I'm not, sure. I'm not sure I believe that because she's programmed to go in succession, right? I mean, that's her, that's in her genes, dead fox on the road. Yeah, there's a couple other thoughts about this too is that the foragers are bringing in nectar and that box was crowded and it needed more and so where are they putting it as you look at all those holes some of them had nectar in them 
And if she comes in and tries to lay and some of those are filled with nectar, she's not going to be able to do that. But eventually they'll clear the nectar out and then she'll come and put. So it's yeah. all about each colony's, you know, like we always say, like a child, they're all different. Yeah, that one makes, that theory makes more sense to me, that they're backfilling it. Yeah, and then she can't lay there, and then later the bees get out of whack as far as being sent her out. Right, right. And they move, eventually they move that nectar up. This is one of those critical thinking, like, how could this happen? Let's, let's explore the biology, and if you could see the field of how this works then you could come up with plausible solutions, and then you go chase it down. Over the next couple seasons now, we'll pay attention to it, and then we'll know, right? And over the years, you and I have looked at a couple different things like this and said, how does it happen? And eventually, you know, we lock it in. This is where a, uh, a good size, say maybe four-frame observation hive would be useful, Yeah. right? To, watch, to be able to watch that through the whole year. Yeah, but again, I think some of it is... What kind of tree is that, Bob? Smoke tree, That's That's weird. Yeah. Looks like smoke, doesn't it? Yeah, I wonder if the bees are working. Stand General Store right here? Uh, no. Up further. Top of the hill. Um, Yeah, just just thinking out loud is that... um, I didn't see a lot of pollen in the hive. You know, trust the rainbow where you see the... Now, is it because it was all capped? There were five frames of capped brood across. Capped, all of them. None of them were brood in all stages. They were all capped, which is really strange. So why would they have pollen there? Because there's no bees to be built, so to speak, right? Or they've used it for the capped brood that's there. Yeah. Well, hopefully over the rest of the season. You and I were talking about this, and Sharon was asking me this morning. If we put a honey super on like you just did, why would we not get lanternfly honey? Are we going to get lanternfly honey? I don't really want lanternfly honey. Oh, darn, I should have brought you your mead. Oh, I have have some for you, too, so we'll uh, We'll, we'll get connected. I hope this place has good sandwiches. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready for lunch. So, all right, well, you know what? That's all. I just wanted to uh, catch what we did. We, we could kill it here, and I'll fill in the rest of the episode with something else. So, thanks for chatting with me. Yep, take care. See ya. So, Bob and I proceeded to pull into the Stanton General Store and go buy a sandwich for lunch and keep on talking, but we didn't record that part. I figured I wore him out at that point. <laughs> I, you know, one of the things that I'll say as a takeaway from that conversation was that in my last hive inspections, which I'm going to go to the local hive report, I specifically took the time because it was warm enough and to follow up on a thought that I have, which is I am going to pull out frames during the summertime and start taking pictures. I, I think that's an important thing to um, do. In fact, the other day while I was on a work call, I pulled up my phone and transferred some of the photos off and realized that there were a number of pictures and instead of paying attention to whatever the talking head was discussing on my Microsoft Teams meeting, I was looking at pictures of frames. Yeah, my ADHD kicking in here, but 
Um, I think over time to follow up that brood pattern discussion that Bob and I had, it would be interesting to not guess, but know by taking photographs of frames through the summer and collect evidence and then eventually go look at the body of work and say, you know, overall, this is what you tend to see by evidence of pictures that are dated in July and August. I don't know. That's just me thinking long-term play of how do I learn about this? Picture is worth a thousand words, as they say. Time to turn to the last part of the episode, which is local hive report. Uh, I want to talk about hive inspections done on July 3rd. That's the date I went in. Um, specifically, I talked about doing mite checks, and I wanted to tell you how that turned out uh, for my treatment-free bees. But 85 degrees Fahrenheit, hot, humid. Storms were coming in in the early afternoon on that day. I kind of just took my time, plotted through the different hives that I went to see. And I will say that some of the colonies were testy, while others seemed okay with the intrusions. The activity was mixed, coming and going. Some of the bees were really um, on it, and others were not. And what I'm going to do is just run through the operation that I have out behind the garage First thing to say is pad one, it's two deeps and two mediums. The colony is pretty conventional. Not much to see, went through to find out if it had brood in all stages. And then when I got to the frame where I could take a mite sample, I pulled the customary half cup of bees. At Kevin moment, I built a device to take a frame to slide into the device. You bang the frame down and then you tilt the device forward and it collects the bees in a small little cup device that I have. I'll have to see if I can put a picture of that in with this episode. This thing that I built based on some design I saw one time on Bee Culture magazine. I love this thing. Uh, it, it beats the tub and half cup measure thing that most conventional mite checks use. Anyway, zero mites in that sample. Zero mites. Uh, pad number three was the next one I checked. Two mites in the sample. This hive has a Russian lineage. They're the daughter of a daughter of a daughter of the Russian colony that I put in a couple seasons ago, and they were testy. As soon as I opened the colony, as soon as I took off the top cover, they were up around the veil. And through the whole interaction with them, they buzzed me. At some point, they stayed with me through the next couple hives, and then I took a break. And when I came back, they all had returned after I left the apiary. So they're not following me around, but for a while, they were uh, certainly a pest. Two mites in the sample. Happy with that. Moving on to pad three. I put the cedar hive back in service. This is a cedar hive coming from Evan's hive that I won eons ago and still have kicking around. It's a 10 over 10 typical Langstroth box over a slatted rack and it has the flow hive sitting on top of it. What I have to say is what I saw in this hive was astonishing. It had six full frames, carpet or brood on both sides of the frame in July. That is so strange to me. I pulled the first frame full from edge to edge, top to bottom on both sides and then the second frame and the third frame and I'm thinking to myself wow this queen's really going to town then the fourth frame <laughs> I had to go to the seventh frame in order to find a frame that was open enough with brood in all stages 
prepared to be capped in order to sample the thing. It's a factory of bees, this thing. And so, it's not a surprise to me that 20 mites in the sample of this colony. 20 mites. Super large colony. Supreme colony, my favorite term. But, in this colony, the bees were calm. They were, they were on their task getting to work. So that's interesting, and I'm curious to see whether or not they'll adapt this flow hive and fill the thing out. I switched around a little bit and skipped the middle row, went right to pad 10. It's a 10 over 10 hive, and it was not doing a thing with the honey supers. When I opened it, it was loud, and the bees were nasty. Now, it has a lot of bees. But any brood that was in development, from what I could see in the fringes, was all drone brood. There did not appear to be any appreciable worker brood. No eggs, no larvae. My thought going through this colony is there's either a new queen in here coming, or they have no queen given how testy they were. I was looking for the telltale sign that some queen replacement occurred where they set the frame up with polished cells, but didn't actually see that. So... Along the course of the day, I went and grabbed another frame out of a, the next hive that I inspected that had brood in all stages and gave it to this colony through the center of the middle box or the bottom box in anticipation that the next time I would come back to this colony, potentially it would make queen cells and then I would know it was queenless. So as a footnote, past this July 3rd, I think it was July 10th, I went back into this colony to check it, and I found that they had a queen, and it was starting to lay. Uh, found bias, which is brewed in all stages, and apparently the queen was knocking around in this large colony, and they were just at the cusp of getting started, which always leads to the lesson, wait, and you will soon be rewarded. That's, that comes up so many times this time of year. Carrying on, pad 11, again, a double deep, and it had two mediums over it. Both of the mediums were full and 99% capped, ready to be harvested. The boxes were loaded with bees, and it had all kinds of brood in various stages throughout. Bias, frames with capped brood, and it was still making drones, and there were drones in the population. I'll take a moment and reflect on last episode and talk about the fact that some of the other colonies, not so much. Handful drones smattered here and there. You see them. They're in there. They're not absent. This one was loaded with drones. So it goes to show that at any point in a colony, like children, every hive is different. This hive had a drone situation going on. But it had, given the brood presentations, a fully operational queen and was still going to town. I sampled the mites, 12 in the sample, 4%. And so the mites are on the cusp of over a threshold, if that's the way you look at it. Given how good this colony was going, and the fact that they had two honey supers and they were already capped, and the one next to it was languishing, at the time that I did this operation, I took those two empties off the other one on pad 10, and I moved them to pad 11. If you were faced with this decision of a tactic, which would you do? Would you put the drawn, fully capped ones on the bottom and put these over? Or would you put them underneath the drawn ones 
and sitting over the brood nest. Give you a moment to think about that. I don't know if there's a right answer. I actually put them over the brood nest and under the ones that were drawn. And it was actually more of a management practice than this is a biology thing. They would do a better job drawing the comb out. I do think, though, that two factors played into my decision. The first one, if it's closer to the brood, it's closer to the new bees and the bees that will draw wax. And therefore, I think that might be a better tactic. And two, somewhere along the line, the next week or so, I'm going to pull all my honey supers off to harvest. And now that they're on top of the stack, I'll be able to pull them off and put them in the cart. Uh, one of the things about that too is I can put my fume board, which is how I do it, over top of the top of the colony and it drives the bees down. If I were going to put them underneath, you can understand that that's a different operation. Now the bad news is two fully capped, fully loaded honey supers weighed about a hundred something pounds a piece and yeah, good thing I'm a big strap and boy because they were tough to put up there on that stack, but got the job done. Pad number 12, the last one uh, that I'll talk about from a standpoint of what's going on colony-wise. It's an eight-frame polystyrene colony, and it has three boxes. The eight-frame B box actually holds nine frames, given the space from wall to wall. The top box was foundation that I gave them in hopes that they would draw it out. And they're starting on it, but given it's late in the season, it's a slow go. What I found was I had a shim for violation and trying to create an upper entrance so they'd have easy access to the box. And because the shim was three quarter inch, it violated bee space and the bees ended up building a lot of extra excess honeycomb under the roof. I had to pull the roof off and scrape that all off and we got two pounds of honey out of that when we did the crush and strain on it. I removed the shim. I went down into the actual brood box to check on the bees. It had bias, brood in all stages, capped brood, and some drone, just like the one next to it on pad 11. Sampled this colony, two mites total in there. So, not too bad. Pad number nine, last one. It's a 10 frame, 10 over 10, with two honey supers that still had foundation in the honey supers. I only gave them the honey supers a week ago in hopes that whatever they could do to draw that out, that would be fine by me. They did not touch the top box, but they were starting on the middle frame of the second one. This is also part for me to learn, just paying attention. How good are the bees at drawing comb over the summer? I know the answer to this, but now I'm gonna physically measure it by giving them this foundation I, I could have given it to them earlier, but I waited until the end of June, early July, and I want to be able to prove to myself whether they do or don't draw a comb after the major nectar flow is over, which in New Jersey, the major nectar flow is over. There's still some stuff in bloom, and I think they're still bringing in some stuff, but it's, it's a slow go. It's certainly not anything where we're in the peak of the season. So they only had one week, and just going to leave it to go to see how many progress. So in our treatment-free apiary, our first full spring after setting things up last summer, 
Here is the summary of the might count in order. Zero in the first hive, two in the second hive, 20 on the third, 12 on the fourth, and two in the final one. I did five samples out of the 12 hives. I didn't go into the Topper hive. I didn't go into the Lions hive. I didn't go into the Russian hive. There's reasons for this, but um, some of those hives restarted this year, so they're not full-size colonies. And I really wanted to go through every one of my full-size colonies. And then it was almost 90 degrees wearing a suit in the baking sun, even though we're in the woods. Uh, it was just too hot to keep going that day. Well, so what do you make of that? Three hives, low numbers, but they have drones in capped brood, which could potentially be giving false positives to the, to the samples. And in the other ones, well, high numbers, no doubt about that. But the bees were visually okay, and the brood patterns were of no concern. I did notice, if you look at a carpet of brood, holes in the brood. And this was hygienic activity in the colonies, which, by the way, is why we selected the stock that we did. If there was something wrong, hopefully the bees detected it, put the pinhole in it, pulled the capping off, and pulled the larva. So to see sporadic here and there, not a plethora, just a, a little sample of bees that were removed hygienically, that's what that behavior was, that's a good sign. That's, that's something that is actually welcome, not a problem or a concern. As to the physical appearance of the bees, no K-wing, no deformed wing. There was some hygiene present, as I just said, with holes in the carpet brood, but nothing to be concerned of. And really, everything looked like a normal operational colony. Now, are there varroa mites in those? Of course. <laughs> but the question is, how will the bees fare? And, you know, now that I've done this sample and I know two of the hives were way over threshold, they'll certainly be interesting to watch to see how they progress through fall and into winter and whether they overwinter into spring. If they do, obviously that might be something that you would consider. Well, if they could tolerate the mites, then that might be one to propagate going forward, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. In the conversation with Bob, I kind of outlined what's going on with those colonies over at Valley Crest. I think they're doing fine, and I sure hope there might be some potential harvest of fall honey this year. I would love to get some goldenrod. I keep saying that, and it has not materialized. We'll see whether or not the colonies are able to muster something this year for that. But as far as a local hive report, check. Yeah, I'm okay with what we got going on this summer. And we'll just keep on going. My next quest at some point, uh, when I find a large block of time, is to go through some of my special colonies. I have not looked at the Ware Hive. I've not looked at the Lands Hive. And I've not done anything to the Top Bar Hive, put, put supers over it. And when I pull the honey from them, of course, we're going to have to go harvest everything that we pulled. Uh, by the way, I was just talking with Sharon with that. We got to get to this because I've done years where I procrastinated so long that the bees actually consumed all the honey that they made. Uh, I will say that one of the colonies, I, I did a check and here I go again, sorry. One of the colonies was so dang heavy. When I pulled the second box over, it weighed 100 pounds easy. 
So they are chock full of capped honey down in the brood chambers. They're flush. So whatever we thought of our dry spring, they did a great job at filling everything out and the brood frames and other things looked wet. So uh, by outward appearances, you wouldn't have thought spring was good, but by visual appearances of inspection and weight and so on, colonies are flush. They look good. Good colonies, well-fed, that's a great sign of healthy bees, hopefully. Now I'll say, local hive report, check. We'll see where uh, the rest of the summer takes us as we watch how the bees progress into fall. I think that's about as much as I can muster for this episode. Let's see if we can close it out here. Just a couple news and notes to finish the job. Uh, it's mentoring season. It's time for us to go out and visit our mentors, our mentees for the Managed Mentoring Program. I've been out to see a couple folks and the next two weeks will be the timeline where I play matchmaker and take those folks who are looking for mentor visits and match them up with some of our local beekeepers who are gonna go out, keep an eye on what they have going on. Always interesting to see how this progresses through the year. Every year is a little bit different and I'm curious to see how it plays out. Uh, managed Mentoring Program is doing great. Um, even off the radar in the in the guys that were doing it, there's quite a few people still coming through the program and everything that I've heard from the people I've had contact with is they're finding value in the program and will continue to uh, keep things going. In anticipation of an even better year next year, I have a lot of different plans that I want to do. Yeah, something unusual happened after all these years of producing this show. I actually got invited to be a guest on somebody else's show. We did a live podcast, video cast, or blog, or whatever you want to refer to it. I was on with Bruce Rodriguez from Swarmstead Bees and Gardening. If you look in the show notes, you'll find a link to the conversation I had with Bruce, who's a treatment-free beekeeper. And we just got caught up. He wanted to know the logic behind me going treatment-free. And we just discussed a couple dynamics in my first year of experimenting with treatment-free, trying to find the path so I can speak to it um, for, you know, educational purposes and also understand, live the life, so to speak. And we had a conversation about that. And I'll have a link to the YouTube video where... He has it posted, and thanks to Bruce for having me in for that. If I think about it, I may have been on one podcast in the past with Gary from Kiwimana, Gary and Margaret. Awesome. I do kind of miss that they're not producing anymore, but if any of you podcasters out there would like to collaborate and have a show together, maybe we could talk about making beekeeping podcasts or something like that, or just chat bees, give me a ring. I'm kind of surprised that more that doesn't take place in the world. Uh, I think we're all kind of close-knit family, and if we ran into each other, we could find a lot of interesting things to talk about. Anyway, just me talking out loud. Let's go on. EAS coming up right around the corner here at the end of July. I may or may not be presenting. I sent something in to fill in for someone who is uh, unable to present something. We'll see whether they pick me up, but at minimum, I know that that week I am not going to work and I am going to do nothing but beekeeping. So happy times are ahead. Bob Kloss and I are going to make the run up there to New Hampshire. and New Hampshire? No, <laughs> it's Massachusetts. 
I screwed that up last time when I made the thing that said it was in Connecticut. It's somewhere up in the northern quarter of the United States. It's Massachusetts. Okay, see you there, everybody. Like our beloved bees would beekeepers go, together they can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody, and be well.